So let's acknowledge something that I don't think we've said yet, and that is that it is uh, Pentecost Sunday today, which is the end of our Easter season. Next week, uh, we will have Holy Trinity Sunday is what it is called in the lectionary, but it's the start of ordinary time. And so we'll be moving in, and, and you spend the majority of the church calendar, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, in ordinary time, which I love the imagery and the symbolism of that, that that is the majority of your spiritual life, the majority of your regular life, not just your spiritual life. Uh, you think all these cool things are going to happen, and then you realize that most of it is just waking up and doing the things that you do every day. Uh, and the church kind of said, okay, we're going to organize our life and our rhythms around that kind of principle and that idea. But we celebrate the end of Eastertide uh, and mark and acknowledge the Feast of Pentecost. Um, and it's something that the church has celebrated and marked for many, many years. And so in the Hebrew people before that, it's relative and it's connected to their festivals and, and their time together. And so we put the red uh, tablecloth out and it marks that the fire of the Spirit came. And so the passage in Numbers may not initially seem like one that is a typical Pentecost uh, passage or sermon text. The one that you just heard during worship time, Acts 2, is the one that you're probably more familiar with. Uh, if you're a real Bible nerd, Ezekiel 34 in the Valley of Dry Bones might evoke some sort of a spiritual Pentecost uh, imagery. Babel is another great one, uh, Genesis 11, that you see this imagery of what happens at Babel and Pentecost. For those of you uh, that are like, wait, what does that have anything to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit? It, it is a reversal of what happens in Babel. It's this beautiful thing. You see the scripture's narrative moving us towards what God had always intended for his people. And that's what I like about this Numbers passage is because last week we talked about ascension. And in ascension, one of the things that I continually tried to like get us to grasp or wrestle with is that there is intended for us, the church, God's people, his bride, his body here on earth. It is intended that we would have this power within us. That Christ ascended is a, a thing that we often ignore because we don't always know what to do with authority and power. Spiritual authority, divine authority, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the only authority we oftentimes like culturally and socially speaking is my authority that I have. And in Ascension, we receive or we are given this power as the church, as the people, because Christ ascends and he sits, cosmic ruler, king over all, all power and authority placed under his feet. And that's where he sits, embodied in his human form at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning as we confess every Sunday morning. And we talked about through that, that there is this way in which we, the church, have to live that out because the world around us needs it. The passage we read last week was this idea that we, the church, would be the body of Christ who is the head. The hands and feet, the organs, the movement of it here as he fills all and is in all, in all of the cosmos, all of the universe, ruling and reigning. And we, the body, the church, are filled by him as he fills all things and we are then meant to be the manner by which that power and presence is lived and experienced in the world. And all of this is impossible without something like Pentecost. The power of the Spirit coming and dwelling. And that was the John passage where Jesus is promising, you're going to do something. You're going to do something more than I can do. 
Jesus, temporally and physically, was limited to a very small like area of the entire globe. We, as his church and as his people, get to be everywhere. And he unites us and unifies us. That's one of the things I love about the lectionary, is this way in which all over the globe, millions of people gathering to worship this morning, celebrating and marking this day of Pentecost together at the same time. And the Spirit's uniting us and holding us together. And somehow all of us together are allowing a wanting and waiting world in need of a Savior to experience the grace and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're meant to do. And we do this through the power of the Spirit, through Pentecost and the receiving of the Spirit in us. And so we, see, we heard in Acts 2 this idea that it comes upon the church, that all were uh, filled with the Spirit. Now we're reading this snippet in Numbers where we saw a small group of people receive this. So let's give some context of what's going on in Numbers. Uh, for those of you that uh, are keeping score at home, if you remember last summer we were in Exodus. And in the Exodus story, they leave Egypt they're in slavery, in bondage. They come out into the wilderness. It doesn't go super great because they complain and you should look in the mirror and go, yeah, I get it. I would do the same thing. And so they are unaware of all of the ways in which the Lord is blessing them, providing for them, leading them. And they begin to quickly think it would be better if we just went back. And there begins to be some problems. And so the Lord, the Holy Spirit, uh, through Yahweh, you know, Yahweh, through Moses, takes this group of people and they camp at Sinai. And it is there at Mount Sinai where they are there for a very long time. And they hang out there and they get this law. And all the while, they're supposed to be moving through the desert. Just a, not a very long journey. It's about 11, 12 days, two weeks tops with a group of people that they should have been going from Egypt to this place that the Lord has promised because they long to be a people, to be a nation, to be a group that is able to have the Spirit of God dwell, the presence of God dwell among them and so that all could come. God always intended that he would be an open door for the nations to come and to stream in. And this is what the prophets will talk about. So they want to do this. And yet they get stuck at Sinai because things don't go the way they're supposed to. And God comes down and he, so he starts making these covenants and doing all these things. Exodus 34, we talked about it last summer. You then get to Leviticus because God says, okay, we got to figure out how to do this. And and these last few chapters of Exodus and all of Leviticus are just like a few days when all of the rest of Exodus is like a few years and they hone in on this moment. You get all of the laws in Leviticus. And this is God's way of saying to his people, this is how we are going to be in relationship with one another. This is how you are going to live. This is how you are going to be wholly other than what you have just come from. You are going to be my people, and this is going to be a different way of existing and being. And so there's going to be some rules that we follow, and not because he is a legalistic or sadistic God, but because he says we are meant to be different. There's a way in which you are supposed to function and operate that looks other than what you have been experiencing, because I am other than what you have been experiencing. And so he invites them into these practices and to these boundary lines to allow them to live into what they are meant to be and created to be that they were unable to live into on their own. And they get all these rules. They, then the start of Numbers comes, and it's called Numbers uh, in the Greek because they take this uh, census of all the people, and they are told how they're supposed to break up their camps, and it's this really cool way in which they're supposed to travel and, and do their camps so that they take this census They're at Mount Sinai, and they're going to finally get to go. And they're going to go towards this 11-day journey, just, you know, a little 
short little jaunt just right up the road and then they'll be there in the promised land and it's all theirs just like it was promised. Uh, it's dramatic or comedic irony if those of you that know theater terms because we know the, something that the, they don't know as the readers and that's that it doesn't just take 11 days and it's not a short little jaunt but it's what it's supposed to be. And so they come and, and they're in this moment and they say, okay, this is what we're going to do. You're going to get your camps all together and all these tribes of Israel are going to set up a certain way and when you stop, in the very center, and if you see this drawn on a picture, I should have put an image up on the screen, but I didn't, because, but I do have quotes today, so we made some progress. But you see this picture, and it looks kind of like a cross, honestly, the way that we would articulate that this would have happened. And there's all these camps, and in the very center was this tent in which the presence of God was meant to dwell. And this is signifying and showing that it is in the center of the people of God that the presence is meant to be, and that all the activities of the people are to center around this presence, around God's physical presence on the earth amongst his people. This is to be the same for us, by the way. This is why I'm making this point. And we talk about this at Mosaic a lot. We talk about being a centered set versus a bounded set type of people, that what we want to say is that when we gather and why we take communion every single Sunday is that we think all of the worship, I am not like the, the climax of the service. The worship songs are not the climax of the service. The center, the heart of worship is to come to the table because we think at the very heart of being the people of God should be the presence of God. And we believe that we experience the presence of God most tangibly here and now through the elements by which God instituted the supper, through Jesus. And so we come to this moment because this is meant to be the center. And we say that that is the goal of Mosaic, is to move people towards the center instead of saying, this makes you in, this makes you out. The idea being, what is at the center and what are you moving to, both in your life and as a people and as a group? This is from, we get this idea from all the way back in the Old Testament. So numbers, this camp that in the middle is the presence of God, this tent where it dwells and it sits. The imagery that is called to mind or that is used to display that the presence of God is there and available or is actively, you know, in that moment accessible is clouds and fire. This is the same imagery and language that gets used at Exodus up on Mount Sinai when Moses goes up. It's garden imagery, which is beautiful and amazing. And there's all of this thing where you, what you're beginning to see is that is at the center of this people is meant to be this replication and this reproduction of what was going on at the garden. So the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and all of this, it is at the center. There's this way in which... The garden of Eden is at the center of all that God created and his presence dwells there. And there the people of God are interacting and experiencing it and are invited in to know and understand the knowledge. Because here's the thing. The knowledge of good and evil and the knowledge of who God was, we believe here at Mosaic and I believe the, the people of God were always, in his creation, were always intended to know and understand that. He just wanted them to know and understand it on their terms or on his terms. And what they did is they attempted to understand it on their terms. And so he's saying, okay, let's replicate this. There, in the center of the garden, in the center of the people, in the center of our worship services, we will replicate this idea that God is found present. And there's a way in that presence, in that moment, that there is an access that happens. Uh, there is a traffic that begins to take place. There is a rise in knowledge and understanding and way of being and existing that happens to creation when they experience the presence of God in that kind of way. And I was saying last week, this is what we are meant to be as the body, as the church. So this group, they get together, they center around this camp, and they're like, okay, we're going to go. 
We're going to move. And how do they know to move? Sunday school kids, you would know the answer to this because the smoke and the fire moves. And when it moves, they move. And when it stops, they stop. And they break camp and they set it up the way they're supposed to. And the Levites sit around it. And Judah leads out to the front. And there's all this way in which God is saying there's a, a motion, a way in which you're supposed to process this, a way in which you're supposed to go about this. There's order to it all. But what he is in this text, what we should not miss is that he, meaning Yahweh, the presence of God, is the one that leads and guides. The Spirit of God is what leads and guides. And I love this text because I think it's really easy to think of Moses as this kind of special person that is uh, above. And, you know, I mean, he's kind of like the second greatest prophet of all time. And I just say second because Jesus calls John the Baptist the first. But most of us would kind of be like, aren't we kind of splitting hairs here? It's kind of a Jordan-LeBron debate. Like, it's a, you know, I'll bring it up at least once every three Sundays, if not more. So... There's this way in which there, you know, he's given this title, but what we see is that it's, it's not just Moses. It's the Spirit of God. It's the presence of God that is meant to dwell and to lead and to make the people move. And Moses is just a participant in that. He's just a conduit for that presence to function. And this is clear in Numbers, that it is not Moses leading them anywhere. It is the Spirit of God that leads, and it is the Spirit of God that holds them together. And so they begin to move. And they're finally on their first little part of the road trip. Now remember, I said it's supposed to take 11 days. It takes 40 years. The book of Numbers is meant to be this uh, marking of the journey. The first part of Numbers, you might get really bored and lost. Uh, if you made it through Leviticus and you read the Bible in a year plan and you were exhausted, you hit the first 10 chapters of Numbers and you're like, yeah, I'm done. Like this, I'm, It's over. Because it's just numbers of people over and over and over again but then if you can push through that numbers gets interesting again and there's all these things that begin to happen and they're supposed to go on this journey it's supposed to take 11 days 14 days takes 40 years and essentially the way the book of numbers is structured is uh, three wilderness moments the first one starting at sinai two more encampments where god stops and they deal with all these things and all this stuff happens and two little road trip chunks we're in road trip number one uh, just like any good parent knows on a summer road trip, as soon as the journey starts, immediately the complaining begins. Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I need to pee. Can we? Uh, he's touching me. I imagine this on a cosmic scale with thousands of people. You're not a cosmic, but a very large scale, a macro scale with thousands of people. And Moses is like, you've got to be kidding me. And I'm sure there was a moment where he felt like they were saying, we think it'd be better to go back to Egypt. And he's like, I'll turn this thing right back around to Egypt. I'll do it. Like, <laughs> don't threaten me. We'll turn it around. And he gets to this point so much so that he cries out in prayer. And so first it's just the kids complaining and parents that have been on road trips know this. Then it's eventually it's the parents complaining. Now Moses is complaining. He's like, seriously, this has got to stop. So he goes to prayer and he says, God, you got to help me. I can't do this. This is ridiculous. And so God gives him a word. And he says, take 70 people, bring them out into a camp. Take these 70 people and I'm going to put my spirit on them. Our NIV translation, uh, it talked about the, then he put the spirit on them. You can think that's Moses through a blessing moment, maybe anointing with oil. There could have been something that went on there. Earlier in the passage, you see that it is God that is going to put his spirit on these people. He says, I'm going to do this work. And I'm going to do this. And we believe in this. We believe that there, there's something powerful about, not that there's anything special about the oil or someone that lays hands, but there's something, there, there's a transference, there's a way in which physical realities can uh, manifest spiritual realities. 
that there's more than, it's more than just symbolic that something happens there in those moments. It's, again, the table, baptism. It's more than just symbolic, but it's a physical thing that allows a spiritual thing to take on fuller meaning. So there's laying of hands, anointing of oil. So the Spirit passes through him and rests on these people and rests on them to give wisdom and insight because Moses can't do it alone. So if you think back to Ascension, where we talked last Sunday, and you think about all the ways in which we kind of struggle with power and we, the ways we've seen power and authority in the church be abused and misused, oftentimes it is because it comes down to, like, it, it, all the power gets held in one person. And to quote the defunct uh, social prophet Kanye West, uh, no one man should have all that power. And so... There, this is true of humanity. We see this kind of take place. And this is always meant to be the way it is in the church. That there would always be a shared experience. It is why the tribes get broken up the way they do. It's why worship gets broken up the way they do. There's this way in which the, the different aspects of how we understand and know who God is, it gets moved about. And it is always meant to be communal, even though that does not mean that it is flat which I think we in our society and kind of uh, a lot of us in this space here in this room that uh, uh, function in the circles that we function, I think a lot of times what we hear is that, oh, it's supposed to all be flat. There is still authority. There's still hierarchy and structure, but it is always meant to balance and it's meant to be communal. It's never meant to be through one person, but we do believe in spiritual authority and that there's something that God has blessed in that. But it's not supposed to reside in one person or just one voice. It is always meant to be a people. And so they take this group of people and they come out. And Moses is with this group. And uh, we don't get this detail until later, but he invites 70. And those 70 are named earlier. There's some elders in, in the census and stuff that we go through. And there's leaders that are named. And it's assumed that it's the same 70. And they come out, but only 68 show up. Honestly, I mean, I feel like as a leader of an organization, that's a great percentage. So good job, uh, uh, Moses. Like, you got 68 of your 70 leaders to come. Like, well done. Uh, Our town hall will not have that kind of percentage of attendance. So they come, they get out there, spirit falls. Now, this is what, like, should uh, bake your noodle a little bit, if you will. Uh, Get your mind racing. The people that don't do what they're supposed to do, the spirit still falls on them. Why? My best guess, uh, and, you know, there's lots of uh, ideas on this, and it's because the Spirit can fall on who the Spirit wants to fall on. And I think it is making clear to us to see that the Spirit does not fall on people because of any special requirement or circumstance. There's nothing you need to do for the Spirit to fall on you. There's no uh, thesis you need to write, no boxes you need to tick, no special like incantation or moment. Now hear me out. There are ways in which in our spiritual life we develop and we go, when I'm doing these things, these rhythms, these habits, these practices, I tend to avail myself in a different kind of way to experience the presence and the spirit of God. And that's because we're human beings and human beings need that. We need rhythm, we need routine. I desperately need it. When I don't have rhythm and routine, like, and I'm just talking about like normal wake-up times and bedtimes here. Like, I'm like a toddler. Like, you get me going to bed at different times, and I just like start melting down in the afternoons. I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself. And so we need this. And, and so God works with us in this. But the point is, I think, one of the points, and I think Moses' point, is that the Spirit will fall on who he chooses to fall on. And the Spirit will move through people who he chooses to move through. And that you don't need to do anything special to like make this happen or like to, to uh, achieve to a certain status or standard. 
And so they, it happens. And we don't know who the young man is, but my guess is maybe Caleb. I don't know, because we get uh, Joshua and Caleb later. But somebody that is close to Joshua comes running out and says, Hey, me dad and Eldad, and it's not Spanish for my dad and the dad, but it's, <laughs> that's how I remember it in my head. Me dad and Eldad, these two guys, they're in the camp. They didn't, they didn't come out with you to this special tent of meeting, and they're prophesying. And then Joshua, who we are about to learn a whole lot about, it's like, hey, Moses, you got to take care of this. you got, you got to do something about this. And I think that there's a temptation here. A, a lot of us feel this way. Now, we're, as I said, we're a lot cooler and, you know, whatever evolved, and so we don't believe in hierarchies and structures and all this, right? So, but we do believe in camps, we like camps. We like tribes a lot. All of us do. And if you don't think you do, then you need to go read about how we're a tribal people and that you believe in them. Um, so what happens is, is when we see good things start to happen and the Spirit of God move in areas outside of our camp, instead of just going, man, I'm really glad the Spirit of God's moving and nice things are happening over there for them, even though that's not how we would do it. We did it this way. We think that it shouldn't happen because they're not in my camp. They're not in my circle. So that's, that needs to stop because my circle's right. As we enter in a year from another election cycle, dear God, pray for us all. Come, Lord Jesus. We should be well to understand this point that Moses is saying. And Paul's going to say the same things. Is he preaching Christ and Christ crucified and the resurrection? Then, like, let him preach. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about my camp. The goal is that the Spirit of God and his presence would be experienced, would be known, would, and that the truth would be proclaimed. And if that's happening, then that's a good thing. But Moses goes a step further than that. He doesn't just say, hey, it's okay, even though they're not out here, spirit falls, whatever. He looks at him and he says, are you jealous for my sake? And I think the obvious answer is, well, yeah, dude. Partially probably because Joshua's like, I'm next in line. So like, if you kind of keep this thing going, like this helps me out. We got to solidify here. But Moses looks at him and says, don't be jealous for me. It would be my desire, Moses' desire, because Moses has this special kind of intimate knowledge with who God is and what God's desire for the people would be. And he said, it is my desire that all of God's people would prophesy, that it wouldn't just be limited to the 70 people, that all of God's people would have this uncanny ability to have an intimate kind of inner working, and I don't mean that in a Gnostic way, and if you don't know what that means, it means not in like a secret knowledge kind of way, but that you're so formed and shaped and that Christ is so center and present inside of you that you would have this like knowledge of who God is and it, it would change the way you live, function, and operate. So much so that when you speak, you speak in a way that allows others to experience and know that God. He says, that's my desire, that all people would do that. Not just me, not just 70. You see Moses giving this power and authority away. Saying, even the people that aren't doing it right, let them have it. Take it. Because this is what is supposed to happen. I say that to say because I think sometimes we can uh, sort of see what happens in Acts 2. And on a day like Pentecost, and we can think, well, that just happened after Jesus. And our ideas of mission and witness, and we can have a hard time, and rightfully so. Hear me on this. If you do not question how to reconcile things you read about God in the Old Testament with Jesus on the cross and the God we see in the New Testament, you're not reading the Bible correctly. These things should bother you at times. Now, I have answers if you want to talk to them that I think are helpful. I also at times just don't have answers and go, I don't know, I'll ask questions in eternity, I guess. But 
there are ways in which it's hard for us sometimes to reconcile those things. The God of the Old Testament doesn't always look like Jesus on the cross. And that's okay. Well, maybe it's not okay, but it's what it is. And this is a moment in one of those spaces where I think it's important to recognize that much of what we see of Jesus on the cross has always been the intention for God, of Yah- like Yahweh and the people of God. It has always been his intention that the people would have this intimate knowledge and that they would be able to proclaim the goodness of the Lord to the people around them. And so Moses says, I wish this would happen to everyone. And the man had to wait, you know, roughly 8,000, 9, 10, 12, 14, 14,000 years, if I do my math correctly. And then it comes true. This is the beauty of Pentecost. This desire, this prayer of Moses in Numbers 11 to see that the people of God would all be able to prophesy. What you see in Acts 2 is that post-Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, we must remember that is a vital part of this, in his ascension to the Father, the Spirit falls, and it falls in a way that lets something like Numbers 11 be true. And that's the intention, that the people would be able to prophesy and speak. Now, when we talk about Pentecost and we use the red and we think about flames and fire, oftentimes if I would say Pentecost, uh, even our children in the back because they do Pentecost lessons, the first thing they're probably going to talk about is fire and then probably this idea about tongues. And we get really fixated on this idea of tongues. Um, And let me say this, at Mosaic we believe that the Holy Spirit moves and that there are gifts for today and that one of those gifts is uh, practiced within confines and, and whatever you want to call it, but we do think that this still happens, and it happens in two different ways. It happens in a private prayer language that people experience, and I know people that have longed for that their whole lives and never experienced it, and I know people that don't trust it and believe in it, and yet they can't explain that sometimes it happens to them, where they just feel this utterance, this prayer thing that happens. It happens in another way that we see specifically in Acts 2, in which the Spirit of God falls and people speak in languages that they don't know how to speak in. Like, quite literally, they speak in another language. This is one of those, I've I said before that I've had a few transcendent moments in my life of, like, I just, you can't explain it. This is one of the things that I've actually seen happen. I've actually seen someone praying in a language that they did not know, and someone sitting next to them was like, I've never heard, like, how, I didn't know you could speak my language. And they're like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I was just praying. And they were praying in another language. I've, I've, my own eyes watched it happen. And so that's what you see here in Acts 2. I think there's a bridge here that's going to connect to us with this prophetic idea. Also, when we get focused on how and the the ways in which that manifests itself, that what we can miss is that there's a way in which the kingdom of God and the goodness and the hope of the gospel is meant to be communicated to people in their heart languages. And like it's meant to make them feel at home. That's the profundity of Acts 2. Everybody there would have been able to speak Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, whatever you want to, like, I mean, they they would have all been able to communicate. You wouldn't have gotten to Jerusalem without communicating to some degree. I have uh, never had to live in another country where I didn't speak the language. I've traveled briefly, um, and I'm not very good at languages, and so I've never even had the experience where I go into another country. I can, like, read some Spanish, you know, and so then, like, I can parse out some French on signs. That's about as good as it gets. Everywhere I go, everybody can speak English, so I've never had this experience. But if you talk to someone that English isn't their first language, or they're living in a country where whatever language they're speaking isn't their first language, and they can get around, and they can talk, and they can communicate with the people around them, there's a way in which when that person speaks your native tongue, 
even though you can communicate in the other language, when that native tongue is spoken, there's like a sense of home that happens. There's a sense and an ability to kind of rest. And you don't have to translate everything in your head, and you don't have to think through it all. I think in Acts 2, this is what's happening. And the profundity of that is that I think that what we are meant to see here is that there is a way in which when we live into the power and the presence of God and we allow it to overwhelm us and take over us, I'm not saying it is uh, less than those two things or that those two things don't happen and only this kind of like metaphysical idea of it happens. But I think what is meant to be seen is that the church is supposed to be able to speak the language of the people around them. And here's what I would say is many of you maybe could care less about the gift of tongues or maybe have never thought about the gift of tongues or have the gift of tongues in this kind of utterance sort of way. But I think a lot of you probably possess this gift and this ability way more than you understand or even are aware of. That you have this ability to meet with someone and speak to them in a way that makes them feel at home and at ease and at rest. And I think this is what we're supposed to see, is that this is that. Because if it was purely the prayer or purely the other language thing, I don't think Paul, a few chapters later in our New Testament, a few years later in 1 Corinthians 14, would begin to say things like, my desire for you is that all people would be able to prophesy in the name of the Lord. Yeah, have tongues, that's great. But my desire is that you would be able to speak this truth and this knowledge to the people around you. And so just as Moses tells Joshua thousands and thousands of years before Pentecost, and just as Paul would say to the people he's writing to in Corinth. And just as we kind of stand here today as products of all of this, it seems to be that when the presence of God comes and dwells among his people and you are full of his spirit, the natural inclination is for you to be able to speak truth and to prophesy. And this seems to be the desire of Moses and Paul and Jesus. So I think we have to accept it and deal with it. This is what we are meant to be. This is what we are meant to do is to prophesy and to speak boldly. Now, we get uncomfortable with this because a lot of us have had different experiences. Maybe we had no experience with the prophetic and the only thing we've ever imagined is televangelists telling you to take off your glasses because you've been healed of your vision and you take off your glasses and you're not healed and you're like, well, that's not true, so move on. Or maybe it is you've been in circles where you've been hurt by this or burned by this because it happens. It's a, it's a difficult thing to learn how to do, and sometimes it happens unintentionally, and just we have to learn how to allow people the, the ability to have grace to begin to step into this, to look at somebody and say, like, hey, I think I have a word for you, or whatever it might be. But a lot of times it happens because when we don't understand what to do with the prophetic, because it falls into a few different camps. And I'll say these briefly. I think pr the prophetic falls into this idea of prognostication or fortune, future-telling. And that's kind of our only category or bucket we have to put uh, the prophetic in. The other one is, is that there is this aspect where we only uh, like have a category for the prophetic in like social justice. And, and it's just, oh, well, we got to speak truth to power. Or the third category that I think has kind of developed in the last 20 so years is where we have this way in which we think about the prophetic as like words of encouragement. This idea that it's a, it's a word of kind of like speaking over someone that helps them kind of move. The prophetic wraps all of that up into one big balloon, I think. And it is not less than any of those in the same way we're speaking of tongues. But I think there's more to it. Now, I think there is more to it because when they say that we need to live in this kind of way, and what we see happens in Numbers and what we see happens in Acts, 
is there's this way in which the people of God begin to invite people into something more, a different way of existing and being that begins to change people's lives. And yes, sometimes being able to predict someone's future and it come true might change their life, but a lot of times that's not going to do a whole lot. There's this way in which like, it has to change you at your like, fabric of your being. And your DNA and your chromosomes are going to stay the same, but being a part of the people of God is actually going to turn you into something else. You are going to become altogether different in how you exist, function, breathe, and eat, and walk through life. And I think this power that we were talking about in the body of Christ that is meant to be and what is, uh, what is put before us as a, an option, not an option, but as a call, as a mantle for what we have to be, to be this presence in earth for the world, for the sake of the world, we have to carry with us this prophetic witness that Pentecost delivers to us and that lays for us to take hold of. We have to be a prophetic witness. So if we start thinking about the prophetic, we may get kind of confused. And so let me give you a few definitions, and these are the quotes I have on the screen. As we talk about the prophetic, it seems that God always wants and intends that this would be the natural and normative way to experience or to display the presence and spirit of God, like dwelling amongst a group of people and an individual. So Abraham Heschel, who's a Jewish writer, is going to define the prophetic as the reality as it is in God's mind. Now, if that seems abstract to you, it's because it is, and anything by Abraham Heschel is semi-abstract, but it's a fun experience to read it. Let me say it this way. I think that the prophetic, what he's saying by this is that the prophetic is speaking or living into God's truest reality in contrast to the reality that you see around us here in this broken and fallen world. It is understanding that there's a, a different world, there's a different truth, there is the truth of reality, not just my truth or our truth, there is the truth of reality that exists in God, and around us what we see is things like death and destruction, and then we go, this, like, it can't be right, cancer is terrible, divorce is terrible, like, all these ways in which families get broken, lives get, like, mangled up. And we see it and we go, this can't be what God's intending. And we experience reality around us because that pain is real, that hurt is real, that sadness and that grief is real, and we do not dismiss it because we're experiencing it. But what we know is that there's a bigger truth and a bigger reality, and we try to live into it. So another way to describe it or to define this would be from a guy named Walter Brueggemann. And he's going to say that the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. I'll just give you another quote because maybe it'll help you understand this one. I'll read this one again first. The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture and nourish and evoke a consciousness and a perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. Last quote, this is from a pastor out in Colorado, his name's Andrew Arndt. He says that the prophetic experience is an intimate knowledge of God that gives rise to an uncommon ability to speak and act in the name of God. The prophetic experience is an intimate knowledge of God that gives rise to an uncommon ability to speak 
and act in the name of God. So those three things that I laid out that I, I want to say that like that's not all that the prophetic experience is meant to be. In all of those, there are times when those are necessary. There is this uncommon ability for people to see things and, and know things. It's happened. There are moments and times, dear God, if we are going to carry the prophetic experience of the church, that we must speak truth to power. And we must actively engage in the society around us to allow for what we know to be justice and righteousness to pour forth like the Old Testament calls for it to do. And there is a way in which when we have this uncommon ability that there is so often, as Tim Keller, rest his soul, would say that we are more loved by God than we dare hope or imagine. And there is a way in which we as the church must invite other people into that to know that you are loved. You are more than you could imagine. You are so much more than your mistakes. And we speak their language to them in a way that allows them to experience grace and mercy and healing and kindness. And so there are ways in which we encourage people. But beyond all that, I think that there is a way in which we are meant to embody this in the way that we live and function and operate such that, that there is this constant traffic between us in the divine that is happening all the time in a way that allows people to not but take notice of what God is doing amongst us. In your homes, you are meant to cultivate and nourish and evoke this way in which the presence of God dwells inside of your walls. And it doesn't matter if you own that home or you rent an apartment with roommates. You are meant to function inside of those spaces in a way that you're cultivating something like the garden where the presence of God lives in it and dwells among it and it grows and it becomes something because that is what we're supposed to be as the church. It's something that grows from a garden where the presence is in the middle to a city. That's the image of scripture. And this prophetic nature and this way in which the church is supposed to operate and exist is the way by which God has decided that this is going to happen. And we must live into this. We must embrace this prophetic nature. This is what Pentecost is about. This prophetic way to reimagine, to re-perceive the world around us and to understand God's truth and goodness that is meant to dwell and live among it and for you to reimagine your life and what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to look like and what success and failure, what is good and what is right to be among you, what will live on for eternity and what is mortal and will burn up, fall away. There's a way in which you have to grab hold of this and this is what we see in Acts 2 with the sons and the daughters begin to prophesy. Another way, quickly, as I land this plane, and we think about how this works practically. In Numbers, shortly after this first little journey, they stop and they set up camp, Numbers 13. And they're told to go into Canaan to, to look and to see what they're supposed to find over there. And God has promised them a land of flowing with milk and honey this land in which they're going to come and it's going to be theirs and they will find success and enjoyment. They'll find hope and life and the presence of God powerfully, majestically among them. And so they send 12 people into this camp, 12 spies. And they go, and if you read in Numbers 13, there's a moment, verse 23, it says, when they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. I don't know if you bought grapes at the grocery store recently, but last time I checked, clusters don't need a pole for two people to carry. Like these are some big grapes. 
This must be some good grapes. You can probably make some real good wine with this, like, and a lot of it. And it's going to flow, and it's going to be good. And then it continues, and it says that after all of this, verse tw- picking up in verse 26, they take this back, and they come back to the camp. So they go, and they see it, and they see all of what God has promised to be true. And they come back, and they came to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite com- community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit, the grapes they brought back with them. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. You can see it. But the people who live there are so powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. They're like, we can't take it. We can't go there. It's too good to be true. What you said is there, and it's real, but it's too good. We can't do it. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go and take possession of the land for we certainly can do it. And what you'll end up seeing is it goes, it's Caleb and Joshua, the only two out of the 12. Ten people say, can't do it. And it's everything God promised, but it's not real. It's not for us. It's not going to happen. We can't go there. And Caleb and Joshua double down and are like, no, 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 no. If God says we can do it, we can do it. And like, it's as good as you can imagine. In fact, guys, it's better. You think these grapes we brought back are good? Like, you should see this land. And I just have to imagine that there's this way in which they begin to live amongst this people thinking about this, this land that is promised to them, that they're given like before them, and then all the complaining, and we're years away from them actually getting to go over there. I mean, this is only encampment number one. Like, we, we got a lot to go. We got another road trip involved. It's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And I can't help but imagine that Caleb and Joshua embody what it means to live into this prophetic experience. But they look at this people, and every time they start to complain, and I think they go, yeah, this, it is no good. Quail and manna get old. The desert is hot. Miss me with that. Like, I love living in the fruit of our forefathers and all that they have done to give me climate control. That's why, you know, I camp once or twice a night, a year, like for a night. I don't want to be out in the desert for 40 years where it's hot and sandy. It's no fun. And I think they looked at him, and they're like, guys, I get it. But what about those grapes? But the grapes. Did you see the grapes? Do you have any idea what God wants to give to us? And I think there's a way that we as the church are supposed to look at each other and go, yeah, but what about the grapes? What about the thing that we know God can do? What about the truth and the reality of the presence living among us? What about that? What about the grapes? You know it's good. You know God is what he promises to be. So why would we give up on it? And there's this way in which the church is supposed to remember that and hold on to it and embody this prophetic way of being where we know what we're experiencing isn't all that there is. And people should be captivated by it. They should be caught up by the beauty of it all. Not like, oh my gosh, those Christians, like, geez. There's a way in which when we live into this, they're like, that is the goodness that I'm missing. There's a way in which you invite them into your homes, into your life, into where you work. And it goes, this is what living into the presence of God is meant to be. And I need that. I need those grapes. I need them. 
I want those grapes. I want to eat them. I want to turn them into wine. I want to experience the milk and the honey, the figs. I'm not a big fig fan, but if they're that good, I'll eat them. This is what the church is meant to be. A group of people that in the hardships and in the desert live and embody this thing that says this is what God has promised and we will not let go of it. We together as the people will push forward because we know that it is true and that it is good. As the band comes up, we're going to move to the table. And as we do so, there's this way in which I think these are these little moments. These are the little, the little snippets, the things that we can hold on to when life seems really difficult, when questions seem unanswerable, when, when things seem to be too big, all seems to kind of be lost. We come to the table and we hold on to the bread and the cup. And we go, these are the things, the fruit that we can hold on to. These are the pieces that we can lay grasp to and say that this is the promise of who God is. And we experience and we allow his spirit and his presence to manifest among us in a way that gives us hope. A people of joy and of excitement. Not because we ignore grief and pain and suffering and the hardships of the world, but in the midst of it all. We go, yeah, but what about that? What about that presence? What about that way in which God came and dwelled among us and he delivered on his promises? And we avail ourselves to the Holy Spirit to do something in us. And we begin to embody this prophetic experience as a people. That is my hope for us as a church. That's my hope for my life and my family. That our home would be that. That this building as we meet on Sunday mornings would be that. As we go from here, we would carry that with us. And when people seem lost and broken yeah but what about this there's this other thing and I promise you it tastes as good as you can imagine so as the band plays come tear off a piece of bread take the cup go back to your seats hold on to the elements allow the spirit to speak and to move in this moment as you pray as you sing I'll come back up after the song and I'll lead us in the receiving of the gifts of God for the people of God amen